0: Than I ever did. you had some heavy hitters, uh, guests on too, man. So keep up the good work. But it's good to be with you, and I'm ready to talk sports. Hello, everybody, and welcome into Sports Talk Chicago. My name's John Zaglou. Great to have you here. On today's edition of the program, Matt Ebert says high praise for Justin Fields. We'll break it all down in just a second. Plus, a brand new interview today with Dean Blandino, the Fox Sports NFL Rules Analyst and the BP of Officiating for the XFL. we talked with him extensively about new rules in the NFL, XFL football, his career, and so much more. It's a great interview, and it comes your way near the midway point of this show. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at JohnsySports and on Facebook at JohnsyGluol. You need to watch more of this show. Search up Sports Talk Chicago, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, SportstalkChicago.com. I want to start today with this. It's no secret that last year Justin Fields wasn't perfect. A lot of fans and even media made him out to be, but there were glaring issues that needed to be fixed. Obviously, not all his fault. Don't label me a Justin Fields hater just yet. <laughs> Had a bad coach. Did not have a lot of players around him. No offensive line help whatsoever. The situation simply was not catered to him at all. Not catered to any quarterback, not just him. Andy Dalton, Nick Bowles too. All about Nobody could succeed in that system. No quarterback. That said, there were glaring problems for Fields. Held out of the ball too long, unfortunately. Did not have a good enough pocket presence. Yeah, that comes with experience and time. bubble the football too much. There were things he needed to work on coming into this season. He was not perfect by any stretch. If he was, he'd have 30 touchdowns, 10 picks, and 4,000 passing yards last year. Maybe 500 rushing yards, too. We all knew that. He needed to improve, we saw potential, we saw spurts, we saw moments, Steelers game, 49ers game, we saw good things, but it wasn't consistent, it wasn't all the time, and things needed to be improved upon. That was supposed to be a big focus and a big reason why the Bears got rid of Matt Nagy and hired Luke Getze to be the offensive coordinator for the team. I was skeptical at first. To be completely honest about Gatsy and his potential here in Chicago, simply because not much experience calling plays in the NFL. He didn't do it in Green Bay. He was the passing game coordinator, not the offensive coordinator. And even the offensive coordinator didn't call plays there. It was Matt LaFleur, head coach. So naturally, you had to wonder what can Luke Gutsy even do, if anything? He was third, technically, in command of that offense. Well, so far, according to Matt Eberflus, we're seeing improvements from Justin Fields and not one game has even started yet. Here's a quote, Jason Leisure of the Chicago Sun-Times. Bears coach Matt Eberflus says, It's unmistakable that QB Justin Fields' footwork and timing are significantly upgraded from what Eberflus saw on film from last season. It's a big part of why he's optimistic about Fields making a jump this season. For those of you who tune into my show and watch me, a lot of my guests have said something similar, that we should expect some sort of jump, and the magnitude of it is going to depend on Fields, and it's going to depend on the situation he's going to be in. I know this for a fact, Justin Fields will not throw 7 touchdowns, 10 picks, and record 11 fumbles next year. That's one thing I know, and if that's the definition of a jump, then so be it, he is going to jump. By default, there's no way he's going to replicate what he did last year. I just can't see it happening. I can't see him regress that much. He's a top pick, big-time quarterback. I don't see a situation where he gets worse. I can't see it. So I agree with that assessment from Matt Eberflus. And here's this from Sports Illustrated. Under offensive coordinator Luke Getze, the Bears are making it more of a Justin Fields type of attack on offense. Talked about this last week. Last year, Justin Fields had a 102.2 passer rating on play-action plays that were only called 25% of the time. Now, I understand you can't call play-action 90% of the time if you're passing, but if you know it works, why wasn't it called a little bit more? Because Matt Nagy didn't know what he was doing. But seeing these articles and then actually hearing this from Matt Eberflus makes me a little bit more optimistic makes me a little bit more optimistic about what to expect from Fields. It's better to criticize what he did last year. Better worry. I mean, seven touchdowns, 10 picks, 11 fumbles, that's scary. But it's great to see these news reports coming out about what Fields is doing now and what he could be doing come this season. I think at this point, a conservative estimate Of what he's going to do involves 20 touchdowns, 11 picks, maybe 3,500 passing yards and 500 rushing yards. That's my guess today. That could change and that's conservative. And by the way, don't take that as an insult. That's a big improvement over last year. 20 touchdowns, 10 picks, around 3,500 passing yards, 500 rushing yards. That's actually amazing. And it could, that sort of play, could actually hoist the Bears into a potential wildcard spot. If they just have some sort of competence at quarterback, they're going to be a much better team than people think. Obviously, there are holes around this team that need to be filled, and the cap situation not the best this year. It will be next year. I know they have more money to spend. They're not looking to win now. But if Justin Fields just does that, if he's simply a competent quarterback, if he matches Mitch Trubisky's 2018 production or comes close to it, this Bears team could be a wild card winner. Prove me wrong. If Justin Fields can have 25 touchdowns, 20 touchdowns, 10 picks, 3,500 yards and maybe 500 rushing yards, come on, that's going to be pretty good for the Bears. And that sort of production, even though it sounds lackluster at best, is actually one of the best seasons in Bears history. The Bears have never had a 4,000-yard passer, ever. If Justin Fields just was competent and put up 3,500 yards... Put up 25, 20 touchdowns, 10 picks, limited the turnovers and the fumbles. That'd be great. That's why expectations, I think, shouldn't be super high. I think a lot of people expect Justin Fields to be Patrick Mahomes. And I've heard that comp already. He better be thrown for 40 touchdowns and 5,000 yards. And he's going to get there. He'll get there at some point. Realize, I hope, realize it's not necessary to be that. The Bears aren't asking for that. I'm not asking for that. Upset from day one, if he could match Mitch Trubisky's 2018 production or exceed it, I'm happy because that year the Bears won. They didn't need a superstar quarterback to almost, in my opinion, make the Super Bowl. You just need somebody who could lead and somebody who could step up in big moments and win. That's what they need here. They don't need Patrick Mahomes. It'd be great, but they don't need it. They need somebody who could lead, who could win, and who could at least play competent football. And hold on to the football, too. So I would hope, Bears fans, that you don't put too high of a ceiling on Justin Fields and cause pressure when there's no need to have it. That doesn't mean we should expect less or mean Justin Fields, but what it does mean is 20 touchdowns, 10 picks, 3,500 yards. That, to me, is a fine season. I'm just saying that if he exceeds it, so be it. That's great. But I wouldn't be disappointed with that sort of production from him, and I wouldn't call him a bust either for doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. Too many people are labeled busts when they shouldn't be. In the NFL, too many guys have put up actually good, productive seasons and yet they're labeled busts. Sure, you can name a number of people who've actually played decent football and are named busts in history. Not just Mitch Trubisky, I mean, there are others too who put up decent numbers and who've been named busts. Jamarcus Russell's a bust, Ryan Leaf is a bust. Mitch Trubinsky, no Justin Fields. Some have said Justin Fields is a bust. No, not a bust, not at all. Have to be careful when we use that term. And I'm guilty of it too. I call people busts who probably aren't. At the end of the day, when we're evaluating quarterbacks and talking about, okay, did this guy help out his team? Was he worth it at that draft spot? Justin Fields certainly was. Not a bust. And 20 touchdowns and 10 picks is not bust worthy either. Just because you're expecting Patrick Mahomes and he delivers Ryan Tannehill or Kirk Cousins esque production, that doesn't mean he's a bust. That's why, at the end of the day, as long as the Bears win, it doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter. Jim McMahon, good quarterback. But if you look at his numbers, not the best, still, good leader, team guy, and that team, most importantly, won. And everybody loves Jim McMahon, and that's great. He deserves the praise for leading that team to a Super Bowl. But at the end of the day, Jim McMahon is no Steve Young, Dan Marino, doesn't matter. Won. And that's the same thing here with Justin Fields. Justin Fields may never put up Patrick Mahomes-type numbers, and yet he's not a bust if he doesn't. If he wins a Super Bowl, if he leads the Bears to multiple playoff appearances, even even one, even one, that automatically makes sure, to me, not a bust. We can't demand too much of him either. Remember, first year, new offense, new scheme, and a whole new team around him too. We have to be patient, but we have to hold him and this whole Bears team accountable when they suck. At the same time, though, a decent year is something to be excited about. It doesn't have to be a superstar, light-up-the-stat-line type season. just has to be competent. Is there any improvement? Even if Justin Fields had 15 touchdowns, 12 picks, it's still an improvement over 7-10 and 10 and 11 fumbles. I need to see improvement this year. We all do. If Justin Fields doesn't improve, then we got a problem. Ben, yes, he could very well be a boss. But based on these reports here, it looks like he is. And if we could see that in games, even if it's not Mahomes, Josh Allen type production, I'll tell you this much, that's a positive and it should be treated as such. Again, Matt Eberflus. He said it's unmistakable that Justin Fields' footwork and timing are significantly upgraded from what he saw on film from last season. That's amazing. That's great. This should be celebratory. Because that was a big problem for Justin Fields last year, and we all know this. Huge problem. Not under the football too long. Took too many sacks. The O-line was bad, but still, fumbled the ball way too much. Too many picks. Not enough touchdowns. All these things need to be improved upon. And a lot of it has to do, believe it or not, with timing and footwork. A lot of it does. A lot of it has to do with timing, with how long you're going to hold onto the ball, and footwork. Your drop back. um, How you move in the pocket. Good pocket presence. Anticipating. Blitzes and coverages. These are all things that you're only going to improve upon in an in-game atmosphere. Fields was thrown to the Wolves last year. I didn't appreciate the way he was treated, but hopefully it helped him learn more. So these are all good things that are coming out of Bears camp. And as I said many a time, even recently too, this may not be the best year, although they have a pretty favorable schedule, but we need to see improvement. And as long as we do, it's okay. The Bears have tons of cap room for 2023. They better be good then, not now. But if Justin Fields could be a competent, just a competent quarterback. Even if he puts up Teddy Bridgewater type production, I'll tell you this much, this Bears team could be in the thick of it. They could go 8-9, 9-8, and and contend for a wild card spot. Doesn't mean they're going to make it. Doesn't mean we should be pissed if they don't. But it does mean that if they're contending, if it's the last week of the year, and the playoff spot's on the line, they're doing something right. And things are much better than how they were under Matt Nagy. And Brian Pace, too. So this is encouraging news. I hope for the best when it comes to Justin Fields and the Bears. And all I can say at this point is, let's hope for more good news. And let's hope for more progress. And let's hope that Justin Fields could at least play competently. Because if he does, it's going to be very good for the Bears next year. here on Sports Talk Chicago. My interview with Team Blandino comes up next, so stay tuned. Sports Talk Chicago. Here for John Zaglula and we are back and ready for today's special guest season. NFL rules analyst for Fox Sports and the VP of officiating for the XFL. Please welcome Dean Blandino to the program. Dean, it's great to have you, on. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. What do you make of NFL officiating this past year, first off? You know, NFL officiating, you
1: look at it from year to year and it, it doesn't, it doesn't change drastically in terms of performance. I think what changes and it's changed more drastically in recent years is the scrutiny, the attention, the expectation, as technology continues to get better and we, and we, we continue to improve the way that we can watch the game and analyze the game. We got to remember the officials are still human beings and, and they aren't evolving as quickly as the technology is. So I think the officiating was, was good. There's always going to be ups and downs, Uh, But I think the league took some good steps to try to use technology to help the on-field officials and and make the game, you know, just make the overall game better, more efficient, more accurate. And I think that's something the league, you know, has to continue to look at.
0: What technology specifically are you referring to?
1: Yeah, so last year what the league did is they allowed for the replay officials and the group in New York to provide the on-field officials with information in real time. So they were able to use video and provide information on objective aspects of a play, the ball hitting the ground, a, a, a knee down, the foot touching out of bounds, things like that. So um, rather than go through a, a full blown review, they were able to correct some things uh, more efficiently and, and, and expedite that process. So I think that was a good, a good step in the right direction. It wasn't without its growing pains, and there was definitely some, some things where it created some confusion. But I think that's the type of thing that the league is going to continue to look at um, and, and help the officials. And also, just as we think about game time and, and, and flow of game, you know, eliminate some of the unnecessary stoppages.
0: How do you think the flow of the game is right now, and could it improve? You
1: know, I think it's pretty good. You know, you always look at the the overall game length, and it's down um, three hours and three minutes and change, which is down from previous years. But within it's within that three hours and three minutes, how is that game flowing? or are, are how many stoppages for replay reviews, penalty administration, the things that you can control? Right, you can't control how many incomplete passes there are, you know, there, there are a, 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 an expected number of television timeouts and, and things like that. So those are built in, but, you know, I think the game is in a good place and and you want to try to keep it within that three hour window. But again, fans don't care if a game is three hours or three hours and 20 minutes, if it's a good game, if it's exciting, if it has good flow. Um, So I think that's kind of the, the goal is to try to, you know, maintain that good flow, maintain competitive balance, and uh, and the rest will take care of itself.
0: What's the one thing that made officials so much better last year and in the years to come as well? Is there one specific thing that's made them much better?
1: You know, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's just overall training and development. You have to continue. You know, my time at the NFL, that was a constant, constant challenge in terms of getting. You have 17 different officiating crews, seven officials each at an individual position, um, so you you might have 17 different referees. You might have 34 different line of scrimmage officials. You might have 51 different deep officials. And trying to get those officials to call the game consistently, so when there's a call made in Seattle, it's it's under the same parameters and the same standard as the call that's made in Chicago. And I think that's the biggest challenge. I think that's just the overall the overall picture in terms of using technology, teaching. Um, you think about when I first started in 1994, you know, the Internet wasn't a big thing. You couldn't just share video electronically. You had to to send that video via FedEx or via, you know, regular mail. And you were waiting days <laughs> to get a look at that video. Now you can the access to video with and, and Zoom sessions and virtual training sessions. It's gone so far above and beyond what we used to have. And that makes everyone better
0: has the internet made officials over scrutinized?
1: Absolutely. No question. Um, (laughs) You know, when I first started the internet, again, it wasn't as big. And there, you know, you might make a mistake, there might be a a mistake in a game, and everyone moved on. And it was it was a non issue. um, You know, not just the next day, but maybe, you know, an hour or two later. Now, with the access that everyone has the platform, um, you know, media is such a, a nebulous term today because everyone with an internet connection and a, a platform can be considered media. And so the scrutiny, no question the internet has changed how people view officials, the access, and it's made it, you know, the environment uh, more pressurized, but that's what, that's what officials expect when they get to that, you know, the highest level, they understand that and they know that going in.
0: What's the most pressure you've faced when you work for the NFL?
1: The most pressure I faced, you know, for me, it wasn't something I enjoyed game day. I I enjoyed being in the moment and and being able to look at a call and analyze, it. especially when we were part of replay decisions. I was a replay official for for several years. So I really enjoyed that and didn't didn't feel that um, as pressure. The pressure, more pressure that I felt is when there was no control. Uh, when I was, you know, in, a, in the command center watching the game and really didn't wasn't able to to be a part of that decision making process and watching a flag being thrown and then and then hoping as the replay comes up that that flag, you know, that that call is correct. So, you know, that that's you feel that type of pressure because you don't want games to be decided by officiating. Um, you want the officials to be a non-issue, to be a non-factor. That's not always the case. It's just the way it is. Uh, but you know, I always enjoy game day, and I loved you know love being a part of that.
0: Have you dealt with that when when you work for the NFL, officiating potentially deciding a game? How difficult was that to handle?
1: No question. I mean, there's it's very rare where one call decides a game, right? Because there's so much that goes into 155 plays on average, and every play there's something happens, and then that has a kind of a ripple effect. So it's rare, in my experience, where one call decided the outcome of the game, but, you know, there have been instances where that call, you know, changed the, you know, the outcome of the game. If you think of the saints and the Rams and the NFC championship game and the missed pass appearance call, that's obviously a big call and, and, and probably decided who went to the super bowl. I, I go back to pre replay and the Seahawks and jets. And in, in 1997 with a Vinny Testaverdi sneak up the middle on fourth down, ruled a touchdown game, winning touchdown. And he was clearly short so there are going to be calls like that in my time. Um, I don't think there's one that, that you could say it absolutely decided the game, but it definitely had a big impact on the game. You know, I think back to, uh, you know, the, there was an illegal bat in Detroit, Seattle at the, in the end zone after a Calvin Johnson fumble, that wasn't called near the end of the game. That was a big call and there've been others, but it's, uh, you know, that's just part of it. You got to deal with it. You have to be transparent. If the officials made a mistake or I made a mistake from the command center, you've got to admit that and, uh, and move on. Because if you don't, then it's just going to kind of linger.
0: What do you think about the bears game this past year, Monday night football, the James Daniels phantom illegal block? Uh, how did you feel about it when you saw that play?
1: Yeah. You know, that's a tough one. I didn't think it was a foul. You know, the bears were involved in a couple, you know, you had the the, the taunting call, in, um, uh, you know, against the Steelers in, <laughs> and, and those are tough because they're judgment calls and, and, and it's just, you know, the official in the moment made the call and you can, you can live with that. You don't want that to happen very often, but we got to remember in, in the officials get one look at it in real time. And then we get to analyze it and break it down from several different angles and slow motion. So, uh, you know, officials are going to miss calls and, and I think coaches and players understand that. You know, I've had two separate coaches tell me the same thing in separate conversations. Jim Caldwell and Bill Belichick both told me, look, there are three groups that decide games, the coaches, the officials, and the players. And he said, coaches make the most mistakes, players make the next most, and officials make the fewest. And, and uh, But they do make mistakes, and it happens, and uh, it's just part of the, the human element of the game.
0: What could we expect moving forward for the NFL when it comes to rules? Any changes or anything on the docket for improving the game?
1: Yeah, well, this year, you know, made a couple of changes, added the, the overtime now and postseason as a result of the, the Chiefs-Bills game. Uh, both teams will get an opportunity to possess the football, even if the team that, that first wins the toss scores a touchdown on the opening drive. Um, so I think they'll continue to look at look at overtime. Whenever you're changing rules, you look at player safety first. And I think we, you know, we've heard some things about maybe the punt return and a higher, higher rate of injury during punts. So there might be some tweaks to that. I think they'll continue to utilize technology to help make the game better and safer and and officiated correctly. Uh, But I think the game is in a good place. You see that from, um, you know, there wasn't, you know, 10 or 15 rule changes this offseason. There were two or three. That's a good thing, right? That means the game is in a good place because whenever you change a bunch of rules, Everyone has to learn. They either have to unlearn something and learn something brand new. They've got to kind of change their behavior. Officials, coaches, players, everybody's got to kind of recalibrate. So um, I think that's a good thing in terms of uh, not a lot of changes going forward.
0: Do you like changing rules based on one team's complaint? Like, for example, the overtime rule or the pass interference rule a few years ago?
1: No, I don't. I don't think that that is a is a and and history has shown that has borne that out. When you change a rule for one isolated situation, um, that tends to not not be the the best reason. And you've got to vet that out. You always. I remember Bill Polian early on in my career going to competition committee meetings and. He always talked about unintended consequences. And Bill was great at that because you could have a conversation and be talking about and everybody could be in agreement. And then Bill would point something out. What about this? What about that? And where it may seem cumbersome, it's necessary because you've got to think about anything that possibly could result from this rule change. We, we have a good intention. We want to change this thing that didn't happen. It may, Maybe it wasn't fair. And uh, we want to make that more equitable. But you've got to think about, okay, by by changing this rule for this one situation, do we create 5, 10, 15 other situations where we're creating problems? I think we saw that with the pass interference rule from 2019, where we never really could find a a clear standard. And it just seemed to be all over the place. Um, So I I don't agree with changing it for just one play. I know over time there was a lot of debate. And there were some numbers, especially from the from the regular season and the postseason, uh, where the team that won the toss did was winning it a higher percentage of time. So we'll see how that plays out. But I've always, I've always, in my experience, changing a rule for one play has never been a good idea.
0: Dean Blandino here on Sports Talk, Chicago. Dean, you're now with the XFL again. Tell me about how that came up and what to expect from there.
1: Yeah, excited about the XFL. Obviously, had the relationship from 2020, which ended prematurely and and really, it was just unfortunate uh, with the pandemic and not something anybody could could have really anticipated or controlled. Um, and just excited to be a part of it again. It was such a great experience uh, to be a part of something new and build it from scratch and and now to be to be a part of it with with new partners and redbird capital and and Danny Garcia and dwayne johnson and 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 some of the other folks that the team that they've put together. It's tremendous. and Really excited about uh, 2023 and, and, and beyond and what the, you know, what spring football and what the league can do.
0: So what are the main differences between XFL rules and NFL rules?
1: Yeah, so NFL, XFL, the foundation for XFL is NFL rules, but there are some changes, right? There's and XFL specific rules, the kickoff being one of the, you know, the big ones where the kickoff is much different. Um, same kickoff that we had in 2020 where you have, you know, the kicking team and the, and the return team within five yards of one another. And the goal was to kind of eliminate some of those high speed collisions that were happening on more of a traditional alignment. Um, you know, you're allowed overtime's different in the XFL. It's a, it's a, it's an alternating tries from the five yard line. Um, you're allowed to throw two, two, two forward passes from behind the line of scrimmage during the same down. Um, there's a three-point try in the XFL from the 10-yard line, uh, different from the NFL. So for the most part, it's NFL rules, professional football rules, um, with some tweaks, and those are those are the major ones that I just mentioned.
0: Do you see any of those at one point coming to the NFL?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I know they've discussed it. Certainly the kickoff, that's been something the league has looked at for many years. Um, Higher rate of injuries during the kick return. They've made a lot of changes to that play to try to make it safer. Uh, And again, you know, if the injury data in 2022 or beyond starts to to compel the competition committee to look at alternate alternates for the kickoff or different alignments, then I think they'll look at that because small sample size in 2020, but it did it did kind of in the in the five weeks. We didn't see those high speed collisions. We didn't have any major head or neck injuries on the kick on the kickoff. And we did keep the return in the game over 90 percent of returns. Um, kickoffs were returned compared to 36, 37% in the NFL. So I, I think that's something they'll look at. Um, certainly the transparency on the replay side and being able to see and hear what's happening during those decisions. I think that's some, something the NFL will continue to explore. And, and, and because anytime you can kind of pull that curtain back and allow fans a, an inside look, I think that eliminates some of the, some of the concerns, some of the conspiracy theories, some of the things you hear from fans um, about, uh, you know, why a call was made. So I think those are things the league will look at.
0: What do you expect out of the XFL come next year?
1: I think it's going to be just building on, on the foundation from 2020. The football is going to be great. I think we're going to see some really great innovations on the technology side. Uh, great coaches, great ownership. And, I, and I'm just excited. I'm excited about spring football and what's been happening with the USFL. And, uh, and I, I think there's room for it. I think, you know, there's a lot of players and coaches, not just players and coaches, but people, athletic trainers, um, you know, equipment managers, all, all, everyone that's a part of a, of a professional football team and organization um, that's out there that, that would like an opportunity and spring football is going to give them that opportunity.
0: To come with Dean Blandino in just a moment. Stay tuned. This is Sports Talk Chicago. <music> Dean Blandino, still here on Sports Talk Chicago. Dean, a few more questions before we finish up. First off, the most controversial call that you had to answer about. Is what?
1: Um, the Des Bryant play, certainly, that's the one that will follow me around uh, for <laughs> as long as, for as long as I'm around. And Cowboys fans will never, ever let me forget it. Um, you know, and that was one it was extremely controversial. I knew it was controversial going in as soon as Coach McCarthy, Mike McCarthy threw the, the challenge flag. Um, you know, I told everyone in the room to just buckle up because this was going to be I said it in more colorful language, but it was going to be um, extremely controversial because we knew the rule. We, we saw what happened. It was clear based on the rule that it was an incomplete pass. But but that was a play where, you know, you look at it and I think reasonable people can look at it and say that should be a catch. Well, under the rule at the time, it wasn't. Um, the rule has since been changed. Uh, But it's going to be a controversial play forever because of, you know, it was a playoff game, divisional playoff late in the game. Cowboys are behind fourth down play trying to uh, get in the end zone and they end up losing the game. So that's probably the most controversial one.
0: Do you ever disagree with officials in game when you're on Fox? And if that happens, how awkward is that?
1: Yeah, you do. It, It always plays out better when we come on and we give our analysis, and part of that is always going to be what we think the decision is going to be, and uh, and that's the decision. It flows better, right? But sometimes it's not always the case, and I'm going to look at it, and and I'm going to and I'm going to try to break it down. I try to approach it where I want to give the viewer an idea of what they're looking at. Here are the aspects they have to they have to analyze. Um, and then you know what is the rule. If there's anything specific about the rule, they need to know. And then, hey, look, if it were me making this decision, here's what I would do. And and sometimes that's not always what they do. And I always try to, you know, if if I if I just flat out disagree, um, you know, I might say that. Try to do it in a respectful way. Um, if it's closed, then I'll try to kind of give a give the the other perspective. Okay, here's why maybe they made this decision. Here's Maybe they couldn't tell this aspect. And um, so, you know, you try to just it can be awkward, but it, you can eliminate some of that awkwardness by how you approach it um, and just try to keep it as respectful as possible. And just, again, educate. That's the biggest thing.
0: Have you ever made a wrong call either when you were with the NFL or with Fox?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. There, there were calls that 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 I would always go back when I was with, you know, as a replay official or when I was in the command center and always go back on Monday and look at the calls that, that were made and, and ask myself if I would make the same decision um, that I made on game day. And, and there were absolutely times where I felt like I'd love to have that one back. There was a play and it involved the Bears, Bears and Lions. It was Golden Tate. Um, it was uh, it was ruled an interception on the field. Golden Tate um, near the goal line. It was ruled an interception for the Bears and, and it went to review and we made it a catch for a touchdown and that's one that absolutely should have stand. That's one that, that kind of stands out for me. But yeah, you know, you know, you know no one is, I, I make mistakes. Um, I've made mistakes on the broadcast too. You try to limit those. And again, it's not so much about me giving my opinion. As long as I can educate and, and explain, here's the rule. Here's what they're, here's, here's what they're considering to make the decision. And, and maybe, maybe uh, I don't agree with it, but as long as the fans understand, the viewers understand why they're making that decision.
0: What about the best call you've made? What would that be? Who the best call? Well, I'll
1: tell you the most memorable one, and there's a funny story to it. It was the it was Super Bowl forty two with the the Patriots and the Giants, right? So the Patriots are undefeated and on the verge of having the greatest season of all time, and 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 being considered the greatest team of all time, and the underdog Giants, and and they're hanging in there and. And, uh, and it, it was, you know, Eli Manning, you know, nearly sacked and throws the ball up to David Tyree and he kind of catches it up, up against his helmet. And I know everybody remembers the play. And that was one where, you know, we're in the replay booth and obviously it's it's they're hurrying up to the line and you don't have a lot of time to make that decision. And you've got to look at it. And uh, and we quickly were able to tell that that the ball didn't hit the ground. And, uh, and it was a clean catch because you don't want to stop the game unnecessarily because that can impact the flow and can give a team a timeout where maybe the defense was, was tired or the offense could get a chance to regroup. So you want to try to not stop the game if you don't have to. So that was probably one that stands out. But even more so than that, you know, my – my phone started. I had it on vibrate, but I had it near me and my phone started going off right after that play. And it was my mom and my mom knew I was at the Super Bowl and she knew I was working. And so I wasn't going to answer. And then she called back again. So I thought, oh, my God, it's an emergency um, let me quickly pick it up. And I picked it up. I'm like, mom, you know, what's going on? What's what's happening. And she's like, did you see that catch? And I just said, okay, mom, I got to go. <laughs> and, I, and I hung up and I said, I'll call you after the game. So it was, uh, yeah, that was, that was one that stands out.
0: And finally, before we finish up today, Dean, the funniest moment you've been a part of in the business is what
1: uh, funny. One of the funniest moments it was, uh, Thanksgiving Day, I think it was 2015. It was the early game the Lions were playing. Can't remember who they were playing. And uh, we we're in the command center. We always had, you know, everybody, hey, you've got to work on thir- on Thanksgiving, but that's a day typically for families and, and food and gathering. So we just told everybody, hey, you know, everybody that was working, bring your families. We'll cater in some food and, and we'll just make it a family day. We'll work, but we'll try to incorporate a little bit of family. And it was really a great time. And, uh, but unbeknownst to me, you know, we have stations set up and where the Lions game was was set up with all the, the monitors and all the replay equipment. Um, there was a, a kind of a, 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 an electrical circuit and someone had plugged the microwave into that circuit to heat up some stuffing. And when they turned the microwave on, the whole station shut down about three minutes into the game. Um, So we were trying to heat up some stuffing and we shut down. Thankfully, there was no reviews, no challenges during. We got it back up. We had a backup system that we could quickly change to. It only took about 30 seconds, but that was one where. Um, you know, I was thinking, hey, what the announcement would have been that replay is inoperable because they were trying to heat up some <laughs> stuffing in the in the command center. So that's one that always, always makes me laugh when I think about it.
0: Well, Dean, thank you so much for joining me. A pleasure to have you on. Best wishes, of course, for the NFL and the XFL, and looking forward to the next time we chat as well.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Great talk there with Dean Blandino. That'll do it for us today. You're on Sports Talk Chicago. Big thank you to Dean Blandino himself, Matt Tubiel, WCKG, Jim DeTalbitt, and to Marble Entertainment for making this show a success. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at John Z Sports and on Facebook at John Z Glu. You can know, watch more of this show. Search up Sports Talk Chicago, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, sportstalkchicago.com. Another great show comes to your way tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. Till then, stay safe and so long, everyone. No, no! Where are the turtles!